0: You are tuning in to the True North Church Podcast. Our prayer is that you would be inspired and encouraged by today's message. For more information about True North Church, please visit us online at truenorthak.org. Good morning, everybody. It's, it's my privilege to be here. My name is Bo. Um, I served on staff here for a number of years. And three years ago, actually the end of July, three years ago... I, I retired after 51 years of ministry. At that point, and um, uh, but every once in a while, Pastor Mark uh, gives me the privilege of um, getting back in the game, carrying the ball on a on a Sunday morning service. It's a it's a tremendous responsibility and a great honor uh, for me to do that. Two weeks ago, I was at uh, the College Road campus, and as many of you know, I go to New Exit and uh, other places, but. Uh, um, I've been enjoying life at a little bit slower pace than Pastor Mark runs. And by the way, the way this works when we do a series is Pastor Mark comes up with, a, with an outline and then we all make it our own. So I listened to Pastor Mark preach this morning and I thought, you know what, if you really want to hear how this should be preached, go online and listen to what he did this morning. But... Um, uh, uh, turns out very different. Uh, back when I was a senior pastor, I remember that um, we, we had three morning services and people would say to me, you know, sometimes we want to come to more than one because everyone's different. <laughs> and, uh, and part of that is because God speaks to us uniquely, every one of us. And, uh, and I hope that He will do that today uh, for you. So today is part 12 of our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church is written about sixty, sixty-one A.D., roughly about 30 years after Jesus went to the cross. And uh, Paul had spent a couple of years in Ephesus, around about 55 A.D., and uh, now it's a few years later, A.D. 61, and he's in a Roman prison cell writing letters to these churches, and um, it's a church, it's people he loves, people he knows well. One of the most poignant moments in the book of Acts is when the Ephesian church is saying goodbye to him on the beach when they know they'll never see him again. Uh, Ephesian church is also mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's the, uh, in the messages of Jesus to the seven churches. It's one of the most highly commended churches, but that's the one where Jesus famously says, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. And so Ephesus figures pretty prominently in Scripture, and this is an incredible book. As a matter of fact, some people in describing it have called it the, the Grand Canyon of the New Testament. Uh, just this, uh, this incredible book that's uh, filled with such helpful things for us. In our Bibles, it's been divided into six chapters. The first three are somewhat theological, a little harder to understand, discussing concepts and spiritual realities that can be a little bit more difficult to wrap our minds around as well as it is for me. Uh, and then chapters four to six, on the other hand, are extremely practical. Uh, and while still giving us a lot to think about, I think that they're very clear and very easy to understand. The first three chapters talks about how God feels towards us, uh, the immensity of what Jesus did on the cross, what was purchased for us there, what our standing is before God, what lies before us as the children of God. And then because of that, the first three chapters, Paul says, now this is the way you should act. This is what your behavior ought to look like. This is how you need to walk your faith out. Now, the key impetus for our message this morning, and we're in Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 9, but we go back to chapter 5, verse 21, which says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, as Pastor Mark pointed out last Sunday, This is one of the most misunderstood concepts of the New Testament. This idea of submitting to one another has been responsible for so much pain and so much dysfunction in the church, such injury and wounding uh, to people. And I wanna spend a considerable amount of my allotted time this morning to help us understand the overall New Testament understanding of this uh, subject of submission, because if we can understand it, what follows then in his instructions will make so much more sense. And I would be quick to say that I'm indebted to a writer by the name of Richard Foster, who wrote a classic book called Celebration of Discipline for some of the following thoughts that I have. Now, there are a number of disciplines that we practice as followers of Jesus, They include things like prayer, Bible study, uh, serving others, giving, fasting, and then submission is another one of those disciplines of the Christian faith. Now, the purpose of the disciplines, whatever they are, is to bring us freedom. Uh, Every discipline like fasting or Bible study or giving, every one of those gives us some kind of a freedom in the Lord Jesus. Those disciplines put us into the place where God can transform us from the inside out and make us more like Jesus. And the more we are like Him, then the more free we become and the more He can use us for His glory. To give you an example from the physical realm, uh, I exercise almost every day. You can't tell by looking at me, but I do. uh, but I exercise, but exercise is not my goal. What is my, my goal is health, right? Does that make sense to you? When I am healthy, then I have freedoms that I would not have otherwise. I can do things, I can go places, I can climb hills, I can, because I have a freedom, because I exercise. My goal is health, not exercise. So exercise merely becomes a goal, excuse me, a means to a larger goal. But when exercise itself becomes the goal, or when it's taken too far, it often results in injury, right? Or ill health. Um, Similarly, the spiritual disciplines are never an end in themselves. We practice them for a larger goal. If the discipline becomes the focus, it always brings bondage. Now get that in your head, whether it's fasting, whether it's, it's uh, praying, whether it's giving. If that becomes the focus, the discipline itself, it brings bondage. It turns it into law and we lose the corresponding freedom our aim is freedom in Christ, not the discipline. Freedom is the aim. The disciplines are merely the means. They are not the answer. They lead us to the answer. Are you with me thus far? So we have to view the disciplines as a way of drawing us closer to the heart of God, as a pathway to freedom. And that brings us to the question, what freedom Corresponds to submission. The freedom that corresponds to the mission, the, the, to a submission, is to be able to lay down the burden of always needing to get our own way. And that's a burden. How much frustration, anger, angst, and conflict do we experience in life simply because somebody is blocking us from getting our own way? People can nurse bitternesses for years because they didn't get their own way. Most church fights have to do with people wanting to get their way on some issue. And most of the time, those issues are not worth fighting about. Submission gives us a pathway out of that mess. The section that we are going to be talking about this morning I said, begins in, verse, in uh, Ephesians 5.21. It's listed there on top of your, um, your notes here in the, um, the outline. And it says this, Be subject or submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is an ethical theme that runs through the whole New Testament. It's a posture that is obligatory upon all Christians, men as well as women, fathers as well as children, masters as well as slaves. We are commanded to live a life of submission because Jesus lived a life of submission. It's a way in which we reverence Christ. We honor Jesus by honoring one another. And when we do that, it will produce in us a Christ-likeness we can get in no other way. The foundation for the biblical understanding of submission is Jesus' statement in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, when he said, if any man would come after me, and get this, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. I'll read that again. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus, in securing our salvation, although he was God, denied himself and submitted himself to humanity. Though possessing all power and all authority, he became our servant washed our feet and died in our place. Nowhere do we see this as gripping as we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus, facing the agony of the cross, he's sweating drops of blood, he denies himself by praying, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. The call for Christians to deny themselves and live the cross life or the crucified life is rooted in the cross life that Jesus himself lived. In our culture, we are much more comfortable with words words like self-fulfillment and self-actualization than we are with thoughts of self-denial. But self-denial is what biblical submission is. Self-denial is simply a way of coming to understand that we do not have to have our own way. The God's truth is he who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Self-denial means the freedom to give way to others. It means to hold others' interests above our own interests. See, the biblical teaching on submission focused primarily on the spirit with which we view other people. It has to do with a spirit of consideration and respect that we have for each other. When we have this discipline at work in our lives, we become free to value other people. Their dreams become as important to us as our own dreams are. When we practice this discipline, we can enter into a new and wonderful, glorious freedom, the freedom to give up our rights for the good of others, and for the first time, we will be able to love people unconditionally. Now, before I return to this idle outline, and I'm going to get there, but I'm not through my introduction yet. <laughs> so hang on for just a little bit. I want to look at two other broad concepts with you, if I may. One of Jesus' most radical social teaching was his total reversal of the contemporary notion of greatness. Greatness, in God's eyes, is found in becoming the servant of all. How many of you have read that? If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you become the servant of everybody. Um, This was in total opposition to how the first century culture viewed gracious greatness, and it still is. We think of great people, we think of nowadays Taylor Swift, maybe, or uh, uh, I could name a political leaders or great sports heroes. We think that these are the great people, but not so in the eyes of God. In God's reality, the humblest person, the lowest in the social scale, could actually become the greatest in the kingdom of God. Um, I had a uh, uh, when I was uh, a senior pastor. At one of the churches that I that I led, um, I had uh, a custodian, a woman, a little uh, a Hispanic woman. Uh, who was one of the custodians in the church. She was the godliest woman I think I ever hardly ever met. And I said to somebody, when we get to heaven, I'm going to be carrying her briefcase, although, <laughs> although I was a senior pastor. Uh, she was such a beautiful, godly person, just amazingly so. And I could tell you stories of the things she did. Uh, but the most humble person can become great in the kingdom of God. The slave can actually become greater than the master in the eyes of God. In, in the, the culture, and when you, and, and I've, I've heard other speakers in this series mention this, when you study the Bible you first of all look at the cultural setting in which in which it was written. Uh, who wrote it and to whom it was written, what was it like, and in that culture wives, children, and slaves, because that's what we're going to be talking about today, had no rights in the culture to which Paul was writing. As a matter of fact, husbands, fathers, and masters had the right even of determining life or death for those people, for their wives, children, or slaves. But now the gospel, what Paul writes, turns that on its head, and now the ones without rights are given the opportunity that by their own free will, they can become active participants in the kingdom of God and actually achieve greatness in the sight of God. And I'm going to quote Richard Foster here and listen to what he writes. He says, the epistles first called to subordination was to those who by virtue of the given culture are already subordinate. Wives be subject to your husbands, children obey your parents, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. The revolutionary thing about this teaching is that these people to whom first century culture afforded no choice at all are addressed as free moral agents. Paul gave personal moral responsibility to those who had no legal or moral status in their culture. He made decision-makers of people who were forbidden to make decisions. A total upending of what the cultural norms were at that time. Then... Having said that, the Apostle Paul then turns to the culturally dominant partner in the relationship and also calls them to the cross life of Jesus by demanding that they retreat their wives, children, and slaves as better than themselves. That the welfare and interests of their subordinates had to become more important to them than their own welfare and interests. This was an idea unheard of in that culture. Literally, he called husbands, fathers, and masters into a greater life of submission than those that they were called to serve. In a stunning revelation of the will of God, the Apostle Paul made the slave equal to the master. One other thing before I get to the outline, and that has to do with the limits of submission. There are limits to submission, just as there are to the other disciplines Example, both Paul and and the apostle Peter uh, instruct us to be submissive to governing authorities, but then they themselves drew the line when the authorities uh, required them to circumvent or disobey the clear commands of God, and then they entered into what we call civil disobedience. Uh, So there's limits to submission beyond which a wife or child or a servant may not go, If there's sinful behavior involved, if there's clear disobedience to the Word of God. And then I have to say that there are gray areas here where slavish submission could bring about very unhealthy outcomes. There's many of them. You just don't have time to explore that because human interactions are incredibly complex. Um, but in defining the limits of submission, what happens, we're, we're catapulted into a deep dependence on the Holy Spirit to navigate this, but he will indeed help us uh, um, to our text. Hallelujah. <laughs> so in, in our text today, I wanted to give us a background, and I can touch on the others lightly because, because they're pretty clear. Uh, but I wanted to give you the foundation of of this teaching that Paul gives. But he's admonishing four groups of Christians about how they could have harmony in Christ. And the first group has to do with Christian children. And you can fill in a blank. Um, Ephesians 6, 1 to 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And so there's four reasons why children should obey their parents. Number one, they're Christians. As Christians, and and it's interesting that that Paul is writing to children. Children had no status in that society. Jesus was the one who welcomed children, who interacted with children. His disciples didn't. They thought it was a travesty. They said, send them away. But Jesus Jesus didn't. And uh, the same Jesus honored women, and he interacted with women, and that was unheard of in that culture as well. So children should obey their parents, first of all, because they're Christians. As Christians, children need to learn to obey God's Word, even when it goes contrary to their desires. How many times does the Word of God teach us to go someplace we'd rather not go, Uh, even as adults? The old song, trust and obey, for there's no other way, what? (laughs) To be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You know, here's the reality. No child that is disobedient to their parents is going to be obedient to God. It's just not going to happen. The child that is most obedient to the parent is most likely to be obedient to God. Secondly, children are taught to obey because obedience is right. And uh, uh, it, it... That word is also translated righteous, which has to do with living rightly, Uh, and it's right. And it's right because God said so, because children owe a debt of gratitude to their parents, and because it's for the ultimate welfare of the child and for the welfare of society. Children obey your parents for this is right. You know, children obeying their parents has, a, has implications for society as a whole. If there's disorder in the family, there's also going to be disorder in society. The promise of a long life and good days uh, for honoring parents has strong implications uh, for society. The deep fractures that we witness today are no doubt a product of the idea that everyone can create their own truth and reality, and that is just simply not the case. Thirdly, children need to honor their father and mother because obedience is commanded. It's the duty of children to obey, and it's the duty of parents to rule. There can be no obedience if there is no authority. Parents and children are not equal in wisdom, understanding, and maturity, and children are called to yield to their parents. And parents within proper bounds of, of love and respect and honor are called to make sure that their parent, that their children obey. Number four, obedience brings blessing. Ephesians 6.3, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. This is a promise of God's favor for a lifetime. I believe one of the reasons that I've had such favor of God, just one of them, would be because of my obedience to my parents. Uh, you know, even in the natural sense, I've raised four kids, and uh, if my children, if I could trust them to be obedient, even when I didn't see them, They had an enormous amount of freedom. If I could trust, if I couldn't trust them, boy, the 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 barriers came up and they got locked into certain things and certain demands. But if they were, if they were obedient, the freedom that they had was enormous. Uh, So let's go to the second group, Christian fathers. So that's children, and this is addressed to children. There's no children in here this morning. We're parents, but now this. Cuts more to home for us. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The number one responsibility for us as Christian parents is that we are to make sure as much as it is up to us, and it's not always up to us, but that our children are raised to love and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to live with him for eternity. I mentioned I have four, four children. I have um, three, three boys. And then when all hope was gone, eight years later, I got my princess. <laughs> and as I've told you many times, I love my boys, but I'm passionately in love with my daughter. She FaceTimed me this morning. Um, so in raising my kids, I've, I've made my share of mistakes. But the greatest mistake or among the greatest probably that I made was when I disciplined in anger. The scripture says, do not exasperate your children. Uh, There were times when I disciplined in anger. And let me tell you what happens when you do that. You force the child to yield to power rather than to love because the parent is the strongest. I could take on all three of my boys at one time at once. Um, When a parent punishes in anger, then a child can become an angry individual. Discipline in anger changes the focus. Instead of a child being made to focus on his own wrong behavior, the focus of the child changes to the wrong done by the parent. Uh, An illustration of this, when I was young, uh, my brother and I were fighting, and uh, we... um, uh, You know, we had the main door. We lived in Canada and cold winters. Then you had a screen door outside that was glass, but you open the glass and there's a screen there. Uh, And uh, my brother threw me through through that door. And uh, I went right through it, shattered glass everywhere, and hit the sidewalk outside the house, and just as my dad was coming around the corner. And uh, my dad, in anger, Didn't ask what was going on uh, because, of course, in my mind, it was my brother's fault. I had nothing to do with it. Um, But my dad, in anger, didn't say where. He just slapped me across the face, which was uncharacteristic of my father. Um, And, um, you know, the wrong of fighting with my brother was lost in the resentment of the undeserved punishment that I felt, the strength and the anger that that came with. And here I am, 74, almost 75 years old, and I've never forgotten it, never forgotten. There's, I've been disciplined so many times by my dad, uh, don't remember any of them hardly, but that one I do. Disciplining and anger does not accomplish what we want to do. Instead, the Bible says, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Now, who's to do that? Public education, charter schools, Christian schools, Sunday school reform. You know, my wife Karen uh, just finished her uh, the end of June her her uh, uh, session as a superintendent of the Fairbanks School District. And I heard her say over and over again to the public. I heard her say it to the school board. I heard her say it to the staff. She says we are a partnership, and the first partnership she always identified with that uh, was the parents, the family. And families can well use public education or private or Sunday school, but none of these are primarily or ultimately responsible for educating our children. The parents are. And we've used them all. I've had kids in private school, I've had them in public school, and we've even homeschooled. So we've done it all because we understood that the education of our kids is primarily our responsibility. Yes, families can use public education, can use private education, can homeschool. Ultimately, we are responsible for the education of our kids, and we are to do the training which literally means education, instruction, discipline, instruction, which means a putting into mind, warning, admission, instruction. But that's the job of parents, most of us utilizing many different partnerships. And it seems from Scripture that the ultimate responsibility for this is laid at the feet of fathers who are sometimes the least engaged with their kids. Today we're encouraged to let the child make up his own mind about God, religion, and gender. The the modern version of Ephesians 6, 1 would be, parents, obey your children, for this will keep them happy and bring peace in the home. Um, That's insane. We don't do that when it comes to reading, writing, and arithmetic. The idea that a child can determine their own gender is, I believe, a satanic lie. It's rooted in the conversation that the serpent had with Eve in the Garden of Eden when he said to her, If you eat of that fruit, you will be like God. You'll be able to determine all of these things for yourself. If a man or a woman does not teach their children the truth, and let me say this about um, uh, some of you don't have a father in the home. Uh, for two years, I was a single dad with four kids. And, uh, and I've, I've been that pathway and how incredibly difficult that is, working a full-time job and raising four children. Uh, so I, I just want to tell you, I feel your pain, but it's possible to do. But if a person doesn't teach his children the truth, then others are going to teach them error. Fathers teach by example. If you don't pray, neither will your children. If you neglect public worship, so will your children. If you don't read your Bible, it won't be important to your children. Our number one priority is to bring our kids to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They ultimately belong to Him. Then, group number three Christian employees. Ephesians 6, 5 to 8, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly, as if you are serving the Lord, not man, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether slave or free. Let me just go quickly over this. The slave was the lowest person of society in, the, in their time. Really considered by some not to be a real person. They had no rights. But by this passage of Scripture, they're put on the same status before God as a slave owner. And the Bible makes it clear that there's neither male nor female, slave nor free in the kingdom of God. So Paul admonishes the servants to be obedient with several good reasons. Number one you are really serving Christ. A slave was to do the will of God from the heart because it was their worship. Number two, they were to do a good job, um, and doing a good job is the will of God. There is no scripture in the Bible that rewards the slacker or the so-called quiet quitter. Going above and beyond should always be the bent of the followers of Christ. An honest day's work for the agreed upon remuneration is the minimum. Number three, you will be rewarded by the Lord. The Bible, the New Testament, and the Old Testament is full of the promises of reward. God is a God of justice. There is coming a time when the last will be first. And if you're feeling in that position, if you serve him right, if you serve him with an attitude of submission, if you do your work as unto the Lord, there's going to be reward. It's going to be based on what you did according to your character and not based on your status in life. And then there's the fourth group, which is Christian bosses. Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. You know, the New Testament doesn't directly condemn slavery, but it was the force of Christianity that eventually brought about its abolition, both in Rome, uh, hundreds of years ago, and eventually in Britain and the United States. There is a little tiny letter Called uh, that Paul writes to a friend called Philemon. It's only one chapter. Philemon is a Christian slave owner. Onesimus, his slave, runs away, encounters Paul, the apostle, and becomes a Christian. Paul sends him back to Philemon with this letter, but he writes to Philemon that he is to take him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. For those of you who are here in positions of leadership, You will be held accountable before God for how you treat your employees, how you interact with them. In in the time of the Bible, the slave was not merely a a possession in God's eyes. He was a man for whom Christ died. He was equal before God with his master. And God would hold the master accountable for submitting to the slave by putting the welfare of the slave above his own just like christ submitted himself to us who were slaves to sin by serving us saving us and then lifting us out of our bondage let me bring this to a conclusion the christian faith does not bring about uh, does not bring about harmony by erasing social or cultural distinctions servants are still servants when they trust Christ and masters are still masters. Employees are employees and bosses are bosses. Rather, the Christian faith brings harmony by working on the heart. Know this about submission. No person, no one can demand submission from another person. A husband cannot scripturally demand submission from his wife because that is something that can only be offered by free will. Every person is a free moral agent. Even God himself does not demand submission from us. It's our gift to him. Just like Jesus came and submitted to us, giving himself as a servant to us, as his gift to us. And what a gift it was. We can force other people to do what we want them to do. A husband can force his wife to bend to his will. A boss can force his employee to bend to his his will. But what they get is not submission, but resentment. It might do the job, but they resent it in doing it. That's not the way of the cross. Submission is a precious gift that one person gives another. And it's the gift that Jesus gave us. It's submitting to the cross on our behalf. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, the way that you do that is by submitting your life to Him. We 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 call it making Jesus Lord the Lord of our lives, and we allow him, his words, and the word of God to guide us then in how we live out our lives. And what I've talked about this morning is one of those ways. If you do not know Jesus and you want to, we want you to know how. And we say here at True North, is as simple as A, B, C. A, admit. Admit that you are a sinner that you need a savior, that your sins have earned you separation from God, and you want to change that status, and you go to B, believe. Believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is, that he's the son of God who came to this earth, lived a sinless life amongst us, died on the cross for our sins, shed his blood, the innocent for the guilty, And rose again from the dead three days later. If you believe that, admit your sinner, believe in who Jesus is. And then number three, confess him as your Savior. And the way you do that is you simply say, Lord Jesus, I want to confess you as my Lord. I want to make you the Lord of my life. Would you receive me into your family and I will do the best that I can to the best of my ability to submit my life to yours. And if you do that, the Bible says, Jesus said, you will be born again. Something will take place on the inside. You might not look any different on the outside, but on the inside, everything changes. And you begin a walk with Jesus that makes the kinds of things we talked about today possible for us to enter into a life of freedom that only God can give us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And if you want to make that decision to make Jesus your Lord, then pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner, but I believe that you are the Son of God. Come into my heart, into my life. Forgive me of my sin, and I will do my best to be a follower of you as the Holy Spirit helps me. In your name I pray, amen and amen. God bless you all. It was a privilege to speak with you this morning. What a fantastic service! Be sure to stay in touch by following us on social media so you can stay up to date with all that is happening at True North Church.